Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In the Shoes of podcast, where I make it my goal to see life as much as possible from someone else's point of view. Just like we all have a unique heartbeat, every single one of us sees life only from our own perspectives. Think about it. Can you see and process life exactly as Elon Musk sees and processes life? The answer is you can't, and it applies to every living conscious being here on this pale blue dot. Hey everyone, thank you for joining me today for another episode of In the Shoes Of. Today I have Dan Teets on the line. Who, Dan, you're in, what part of New York are you in? Oh man, I'm in Ohio. Wait, you're in Ohio. Why was I thinking, oh, it's because Amy is in New York. Yeah, my sister, my your brother. Sister. <laughs> That's right. The, yeah, the, your brother, the doctor in Brooklyn. Okay, cool. Yeah, my goal is to eventually interview the entire Teets family, I think. That's it. That's hilarious. <laughs> cool, man. Well, uh, so I want to know a little bit about your life and how, of course, you see life. So I guess the first way, first question I'm going to ask you then is how you would define yourself in the third person. Oh, man. Well, it depends on uh, on some factors, man. Uh, today, today I'm a recovering addict. Um, first and foremost, I have to I have to define myself that way because for me to kind of accept myself on a on a hundred percent level, I have to kind of put that out there um, for myself because if I don't accept that part of me, I don't have full self acceptance. It, it's I don't know how to explain it necessarily rather than just it's, it's how I have to identify myself. Um, I've been clean for, you know, six years, eight months, 20 days. And, and it, I never thought I'd be clean. I mean, I used for 20 years, um, kind of functioning, kind of not functioning, got to a point at 31 where it was time I had to do something different. Um, so right now, a uh, recovering addict who is a counselor for uh, other other addicts in recovery, um, trying to do the best I can as a as a 38 year old. I don't have any kids, but um, you know, definitely a good friend. Trying to find myself that way and, and learning how to be a a good human being and accept all that part of me. You know, the ins and outs, the areas of growth I need and. Uh, just trying to be a better person. I mean, I, to find myself in a third person, it, it's, you know, being a recovering addict, it's hard to kind of accept compliments and see the good in yourself. And so it helps to look at, I guess, the, the way other people view you, um, kind of look at yourself in the mirror of other people's eyes. And I don't know, it, it's, it's different. Um, it's, it's like I said, I mean, I'm pretty analytical. And so just to define myself in a third person in a few words is not uh, something I know how to do very well. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I even think about that. I, I, if I were asked that question, I'd be like, I don't really know how to answer this. Um, yeah, but no, kudos, man, for for being clean for so long, too. And I totally get it about just accepting 
who you are and where you're at and just trying to do be the best version of yourself. That makes perfect sense to me. Awesome. Let me ask you this, though. What when uh, and I want to talk about what you're doing right now in the counseling world, too. But when you started using and when it you know progressed and all that, can you can you give us a glimpse into what was going through your mind, I guess, even before what, what led to that and even during what kind of thought processes are going on in the back of your mind or on the forefront of your mind? Yeah, that's, that's always, uh, that's where the analytical, the self-analytical started. I mean, I, I think what happened is, you know, a middle-class family, um, baby of the family and, uh, you know, I think our generation and maybe the generation before us really struggle talking about feelings. And so it's much easier to just kind of swipe things under the rug and, and just move forward. Um, and it kind of kind of happened. My brother left for college at like 92. He graduated high school in 91. And, and it's not anything my brother did, of course. Um, but I think what happened is a dynamic. We were kind of grieving Ray. Uh, my older brother. And so like, nobody's really talking about it. We're all kind of grieving. You know, he's, he's a, he's a very amazing guy and just, you know, it's such a light that he has. And I think all of us as a family do. And when one of us is not present, it, it really set a place where, um, I don't know, maybe a void came in. I mean, I, it was hard to explain. I mean, I, I was in sports and really good at it. Um, and then something happened that summer of 92. And my theory is, is that we weren't talking about our grief. We weren't addressing any feelings about Ray leaving for college, but you know, underneath all of it, I just found new friends, um, 12 years old, started hanging out with different people and, hung out with this one fella at uh, 12 years old over the summer and, and he had some older brothers. And so the older brothers, 12 years old, we got a hold of some LSD and uh, kind of went from there. Um, used once and, you know, so of course, you know, the euphoria comes and it's just such a beautiful experience and, you know, words can't really describe it, but the come down was, was enormous. And, uh, and so, you know, something was an interesting evening. I didn't sleep that night. I remember just sitting and, uh, sitting outside my parents' house at 12, trying to going inward and, and trying to have all these questions and trying to find understanding of the, of the universe and all this. And it's just was really drive myself insane eventually um that that came a little later on the second time i used was lsd again and uh you know it took about four hits I, i'm not sure why i think we took two and was feeling good um and so we took two more and i just remember saying to my my 12 year old friend um I think I'm going crazy and wasn't really sure um, what was going on. I mean, I was completely out of it and uh, but something was horribly wrong. And that's what I felt. And, uh, you know, I got through that evening, but I could barely talk uh, just completely out there. And um, 
and a big part of me, I mean, looking at the big picture of it all, looking back, it, it feels like the drugs, like addiction was awoken at that point. I mean, you know, I used at 12 and, and drugs became a major problem instantly. I mean, it, it didn't progress to, you know, using here on the weekends, there, whatever. I mean, after that first really intense use, I felt like I was self-medicating after that and it just got worse and and worse. The depression sets in. My mom has is a psychiatric nurse professor and so she had a psychiatric nursing background. So she sees her 12-year-old son. All she sees is the mental health aspect, uh, the depression, the bipolar, the ups and downs. And she's just as confounded as everybody else. And um, so like something happened at 12 where I said, you know, I need to check myself into a mental hospital. I am feeling a danger to myself. And Hadn't got honest to anyone about the using. Um, I think they drug tested me, but LSD doesn't show up on drug tests. <clears throat> I really don't remember any of those particulars, but I remember being in the mental hospital um, for a good week or so. Got out, um, felt better, but started using again. I mean, just, you know, the thoughts are, at this point, even at 12 years old, not being okay with myself just contributed to self-medicating, um, where the only time I felt good about Dan or the world in general, or just good at all, was when I was using something. And it didn't have to be necessarily LSD. Uh, the marijuana started. Marijuana continued for another 18 years. Um, and, you know, I have my own my own thoughts about marijuana. I think it's it's safe for some, but and I can't. It's not for me to say who's who. Even any drug is good for anybody. All I can share is my own experience, and I, I chose not to smoke weed anymore. You know, I smoked for almost twenty years, sure. and uh, you know, it's one thing kind of getting you in the mind of, of of an addict is like I'm okay without it today. If I smoke tonight or tomorrow, I'm not going to be okay without it. Um, you know, I don't have any in my pocket. I don't have any plans of getting any. Um, but if I smoke once, the the need to make sure I have another one, and the the issue I'll have when I don't have any is is very. I mean, the simplistic part of it is, I always need more. Um, and there's never going to be enough. And so like for just kind of simplifying those 20 years is all my feelings, all my happiness, anger, anything was really based around using um, normal life experiences were very foreign of, of impacting how I felt about the world. Um, if it was a good day, you used. If it was a bad day, you used. And so, like, if somebody died, you used. Um, you got a good job. You got high. And, and and so it's always, like, basing today. Sometimes the hardest thing is when something happens today at 38, something good, bad, anything else. It's hard to understand what you're feeling as a result. Um, 
Because you're actually probably feeling at this point as opposed to just numbing sure, sure. whatever and, the, and the still feeling it's is, like, right? My my interpretation of, of dealing with feelings clean is like say an event happens. It's like that earthquake that happened outside of Japan, right? That earthquake happens way out there. So mm-hmm. the initial event is is the earthquake in the ocean. So what happens is the feelings is the water. And the, you see the water go way out into the sea. And you know it's going to be, there's going to be some feelings coming. But at first, the way I feel is like numb and just kind of apprehensive, um, confused. Similar to say you saw the, the sea go way out, right? And then as the emotion comes, you're not sure how big the wave's going to be, how far inland it's going to be into your spirit or how it's going to affect you really. And it, it is so strange. Um, mm. And so still trying to deal with life, still emotion, a little bit emotionally disabled. Um, you know, my interpretation of an addict may be different than something you read into a book. Um, <clears throat> I was taught many different, different ways. You know, my, my dad was a science teacher. My mom was a nursing professor. And so the, the science is very important, but the science doesn't explain all of it. Um, science doesn't explain feelings. And when you're trying to explain to somebody the, the thought processes of an addict, the thought processes is part of it, but the feeling process of it is another whole ball game. Um, because the insanity is, I know if I use again, I'm going to have to use another time, but that doesn't keep people from relapsing. Sometimes the, if that makes any sense is knowing what you're in, knowing what your insanity is, knowing say a heroin addict, knowing that they're going to get sick if they use again, say, cause I, I work with a lot of uh, people that's been addicted to opiates. Mm-hmm. And so the insanity is they are completely free from dope sickness. And they've been clean for two years. Well, they go out and use for some reason. And and that's the whole insanity is I know if I use, I'm going to end up getting dope sick again. But I use anyway. And it's like this awareness of, Mm -hmm. I know what the results are going to be, but I'm going to do it anyway. How do you explain that piece? And it's almost like there's this attitude of indifference that an addict can get. Um, There's this mantra of effort, right? And that when, when all excuses are gone, it's almost like there's no excuse except just effort. I don't care. And the way addiction works on people in recovery is, is dealing with life on life's terms will, will beat you down emotionally. And if you don't do anything about those emotions, it will put you in a place where you're either suicidal and aware of it, or you're in a place of complete indifference about everyone, including yourself. And so if the suicide comes in, the only better thought, less dangerous thought and less harmful thought than suicide is just to use. And that's kind of my interpretation of why relapse actually happens. And some say people forget you know, we can't use that we're allergic to, to mm-hmm. drugs. Well, 
to keep it as simple as I can for myself. Sometimes, sometimes life, if I don't maintain my sanity, because the disease of addiction wants to work me into a place of insanity, <clears throat> of confusion, anger, resentment, uh, mm. complete fear. And if you turn fear inward, you get hopelessness, you get anxiety, you get this feeling of indifference almost. And you turn anger inward, you get depression. You turn resentment inward, you become a prisoner of your guilt, of your shame. And there's no way out sometimes. That's that's the belief. Uh, addiction will put you in a corner where you feel like there's no way out. And and it doesn't mean has doesn't have anything to do with external factors. It has nothing to do with external factors. You could be in a penthouse looking over New York City, but if you're completely hopeless, depressed, and guilty and shameful, all these things around you make no difference. And another part of the insanity is trying to take something externally to fix the way you feel internally. And so when everything externally is great, but inwardly, hmm. you're a prisoner of your own fear, anger, resentment. Um, sometimes the only way that, you know, the disease says use or, okay, you're not going to use, go kill yourself. I mean, I, there's there's people in recovery that have substantial clean time, you know, decades that have committed suicide um, because uh, using is not an option. Um, I mean, it's always a choice, but sometimes they get so far, the insanity becomes so wow. great that, uh, you know, there's, there's an out. Um, and so, I mean, I... I get very, um, <laughs> there's one thing I do know pretty intimately, and that's the disease of addiction. Um, I went to treatment at 31, did a 99-day program. I didn't unpack for the first 30 days because I wasn't sure I wanted to be there. Something happened where <clears throat> I decided to stay. And still, you know, once I left treatment, I never really, in a way, I never really left the treatment setting. Um, I started working in treatment 16 months clean, just mowing grass. They asked me to do some groups here and there um, at the same treatment center that I went to. And, uh, and that carried over until I got my own office in like two years. And then uh, I got an opportunity to work, actually make some more money and work in an outpatient setting with them. <clears throat> and so now I have, for the last three years, I've worked in an outpatient setting, um, got a caseload of about 40, 45 people. That's excellent. And, uh, yeah. Um, and what do you, what do you tell them? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you, you're right on. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, you know, and this may be helpful for some listeners, you know, uh, if, Okay, we have a couple options. Let's say we're someone's an addict and they decide, no, this is not good for me. I'm going to stop. Whether whatever it is, um, an opiate or um, you know, who, who knows? You know, cocaine, I whatever drug it is out there, or a conglomeration of them, but they decide, okay, I'm not doing that. 
and suicide's not an option. So what what is it that you tell people? I mean, I'm sure it's on a case by case basis, but what are some coping mechanisms? Number one, whether you believe in God or not, it doesn't really matter. Uh, pray. Um, and why I say that is, is because there's something about addiction that's, that I was taught is very self-centered. Um, it's, there's three parts of addiction. There's obsession, compulsion, mentally it's obsession, physically it's compulsion, but the spiritual part, which makes it very difficult to treat is this total self-centeredness. This belief that my using is not affecting anyone else. It's my life. Um, and it goes much deeper than that. And so when you're dealing with a spiritual dilemma of trying to take something externally to fill this giant void, there's only one thing that I've found. And, and so like what I say simply to pray, whether you believe it or not, Sometimes just try if you're that desperate. Um, I know I hit a place where I was that desperate. You know, the prayer is important. <clears throat> Talking about it is very important, um, which is also simply a form of prayer, too. When I'm talking to somebody about something real, like how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, the, the honest sharing of the heart, it's a form of prayer. That's my belief. Sure. And it doesn't have, to, and it could be to somebody else. And <clears throat> I've seen people, a lot of what I do, I don't give a lot of packets to my clients. I don't give a lot of um, education stuff. It's all talk therapy. And that's just what I like. Um, where we'll just talk it out. Let's what's really going on. Why do you feel that way? And it, Sometimes I'll give them some answers, but I try and lead them to their own answers. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because it was, it was so vital to find my own truth. And so the coping skills, talking about it, um, remaining honest, being extremely brave and courageous, because the fear of judgment is so profound, um, even clean, the fear of judgment fear of being exposed for uh, whatever it is. And so another, I mean, simple coping skills, man, if I could get high on coping skills, they may work. <laughs> and so like working in treatment, I have my own feeling about coping skills because if it can keep me from saying F it, then it's a good coping skill. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just, because I can't, man, it, it's, it's a good question. And I've yet to find a coping skill to keep somebody clean. Um, gotcha. Not gotcha. to me, not to be any sort of a cynic about the coping skills that treatment provides. But the simple ones about just allowing other people in. Hmm. Talking about what's going on in your heart, your spirit, talking what's going on in your mind. Because a lot of times this fear of judgment will cause the person to isolate and not even share with anybody how scared and insecure they are. That is 
And so go ahead. That's such a good point. And I wonder if that is a a factor in really a lot of just issues, not even maybe even spanning across. Uh, I mean, I know it is even greater than uh, not greater than, but in other areas, aside from even drug addiction. But here I can see that where definitely just the fear of being judged because we have such a stigma around that, especially here in the States. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I'm I uh, it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, that's uh, it's a fear of what others may think. How do you guide people through that? I have to lead by example. Um, you know, some treatment centers that I've worked in are, are very they frown upon kind of like self-disclosure um, for reasons, you know, I understand why. And, I, you know, and I don't have to disclose that I'm an addict um, for them to understand that I'm human and I'll make fun of myself and just allow, if I can show them how to be free to be themselves they start believing that it's cap- that they're capable of doing it. They feel mm-hmm. safe in an environment. And even if it's just with me, even if it's just with me, if it just starts with their counselor of, I understand you're not going to be judged and make sure they feel, they feel that they're not being judged. And I, and I make yeah. sure that they, they will tell me if they feel being judged, <clears throat> because oh, I think you're, good. I think you're exactly right about the, this the society is so afraid of judgment and there's been studies about the amount of mental health in this country. And so like the, the amount of it has led to so much, so much. I mean, when you talk about addiction, a lot of people think, think of drugs, but there's so much more addiction than that. Um, Any, I mean, if, if I am just compulsive about getting on the internet, I'm just obsessing and compulsing about social media and what I'm thought of there. And that's how I'm going to define myself. It's almost like the simplest way I can put it is if I'm making something my higher power, I'm in deep trouble. If I'm doing it with, with something externally, social media, if that's how I define myself, if that's where I'm placing my self-esteem, I'm in deep trouble. If I'm placing yep. my, if you're actually deriving your self worth right from from those things, oh, it's terrifying! It's terrifying because it's not based in reality. And it, and mm-hmm. so many of my friends, myself included, had to go through this of not making a person my higher power. We talk a lot about codependency, <clears throat> and so like when how I'm feeling about me is how this other person feels about me, and it's like Romeo and Juliet was a tragedy for a reason is I can't live without you. I mean, these these right. are just obsessive kids where, I mean, it's just such a, it's so fantasized, romanticized. It's actually a tragedy because it's a sad story. It's like, man, it's yeah. a shame because I need this person to make me happy. Well, that's so dangerous and so unhealthy because the expectation oh, yeah. is this person isn't going to fill that void this person, even if they could make me happy, let me share a story. My first relationship clean, I was just completely obsessed. Like she's the one and everything else. And I remember texting 
And if she didn't text within a few minutes, I was complete. I text back. Where are you? And then I nothing, nothing. And I got nothing. Oh no. Oh no. And here comes another 20 minutes. Are you mad at me? No response. Well, if you're mad at me, tell me. And so like I had an hour conversation with myself. And through this hour, I went from a place of peace to a place of bold letters. We're done. You're cheating. Everything else. You never loved me, you liar. And then I calmed down and I've apologized at the very end. And then I finally get a call from her. And I guess her phone died. And she said, you're completely insane. You're scaring the hell out of me. And I don't think we can be together. Completely obsessed, compulsed, due to fear that this is over. And because I was so still looking for something outside of me to make me happy. And since I got, since, you know, that that new love is so addictive, you put love and fear together you get obsession. That's my understanding. And so when you feel like I love this person, even if it is lust or love, whatever, we have a tendency to place fear on top of it because I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. And so like now I'm completely a stalker. Now I'm in your bushes and it's like, what happened? What happened? It's like, this was such a beautiful thing and I ruined it all. Because fear set in. And so like any any addict, I can only speak from an addict's experience, but I imagine people do this, regular civilians as we call them, <clears throat> tend to place fear on anything that feels good. I got a, I got a raise at my job, say six months ago. Within a couple weeks, I was fearful that I was going to lose it. It wasn't based on anything real. It was just something in my head said they're having secret meetings about you. They're talking about you. And so like this spiritual self-centeredness is like, no, they weren't. Like you're important, but you're not that important where they're having secret meetings for no reason about Dan. But something in my head says, yes. Like this self-centered fear says, yeah, they're having special meetings about you. And then you see where paranoia comes from. <clears throat> Somebody that's paranoid is like, they think they're that important, but that self-centered fear is so great that even the government is watching them. And I got to protect myself. And so like, like you were saying, like this, this, this fear plays a role in so much mental health. Now you may not read this in a book, but this is just my own kind of observation of, of life and how mental health begins. And we're not taught how to deal with fear. We're not taught how to deal with emotions. Um, you know, I don't know if you are, some people tell me all the time, don't, don't get too emotional. Like it's a bad thing because it doesn't make logical sense. Like we're so based in science and what's logical. Feelings don't make any sense, none whatsoever. And so like trying to understand them as an addict, logically, now I judge myself because I'm angry. 
Now, I judge myself because I'm happy. Now, I judge myself because I'm guilty. I'll judge myself because I don't feel guilt. Right. <laughs> I, I, I wish I didn't understand what you were saying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so it's so deep, like, but like this fear, um, you know, I, I have a tendency just, you know, we call it a disease of addiction. But the disease, a disease concept for me doesn't give it the credit it deserves because then it almost makes it inclusive. But I think this fear of, of judgment places such an impact on just people in general that this judgment of ourselves is so harsh. Oh, um, we are the worst judges of ourselves. The worst. Nobody talks. I don't know if you're like me, but nobody talks to Dan like Dan does. I wouldn't tolerate it. Oh, no. <laughs> Heck no. If I, yeah, if, if, uh, and I try, I've been trying to, you know, in recent years, trying to, you know, be, I guess, in the words of, um, what's the guy here with the four agreements? Well, that author, uh, I try to be impeccable with my word and not use the word against myself, you know? Because what you're what you're describing is so on point with what he talks about in his book about how, you know, just by basic belief systems, whether it's based on truth or not, can lead us into a very deep personal hell. You know, like the, the girlfriend, you know, texting when who knows, but oh wait, the phone was dead. You know? So he makes these valid points. He's like, don't use the word, these belief systems against ourselves. Don't, you know, and and even using using some other authors too. It's just like, wow, if we, we would not tolerate half of the crap we say to ourselves from someone else, if it came from somebody else, for sure. So I, I totally get it. And, and what I was taught was so powerful because whatever our truth is, is our truth. And we, I, I was taught in recovery that I have to revise everything I know about the truth and especially what I know about myself. And so everything, my perspective was so distorted by fear. I was taught fear distorts reality. And so if I can look fear dead in the eye and expose it for what it is, which is false evidence appearing real, that's what I was taught. And so like I look at it and I see that it's not real. But once I was able to change my truth, my perspective, just like Gandhi says, be the change you want to see in the world. I was able to change the world because I changed the way I looked at it. And like you hear that a lot from people. But it's simpler than 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 like what makes it so difficult is that we complicate the hell out of it. And, and so like it's such a simple, simple decision. Just rather than say I have to a friend of mine taught me this. Rather than say, I have to go to work, he says, we get to go to work. We get to be clean. We get to be a productive member of society. We get to be a son. We get to be a, a father. We get to be a human being today. And just changing from get, from have to, to get to, does something to me um, where I'm not so negative. And you know, getting to do things today, right? And I have to do things was big. We could even take a little step, a step further and say, you know what? I, I was able to, or I, I get to experience some education. I get to learn from this 
uh, mistake that I made. Because we so often dwell on our past mistakes and it creates this cycle. And we're so self-judgmental where if we change our perspective on that too and be like, I'm so grateful that, well, for one, I'm actually a human like everyone else. I'm not special in the my ability to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, I, I actually get to experience all that life has to offer. I get to learn from it. And I feel like that's such a huge thing, especially for you know, anyone who struggles with, you know, going back to the past, which is a lot oh, of gosh. us. Yeah. And uh, someone, the same guy taught me how to, how to remove shoulds, woulds, and coulds out of my vocabulary. I can't change it. So why even say it? You know, we speak things into existence and, and removing that removed a lot of the guilt and shame. Um, because I, I think a lot of us are prisoners, not just addicts in recovery or addicts, period. We're just prisoners of our guilt and shame and it beats us up constantly and and so like to move forward i like i was going somewhere i was thinking about when you said get to and you were talking about just getting to experience life the ups and downs the ins and outs all of it i go back to this uh my, my mom turned me on to this book called the prophet it's Khalil Gibran. I guess it was more popular in the 60s, but it was written in the 20s. But he talks about love and he talks about if I'm not willing to experience the sorrow that love brings, the pain that love brings, I will not experience the joy and, and the jubilation. I mean, these aren't his words, but the point was if I'm not willing to experience life in general, I might as well not even get out of bed. If I'm not, because so many people are so afraid to love out of fear of being hurt, so afraid to let themselves be out there and expose themselves and in, in love another person because they're afraid that they're going to experience pain or, or betrayal or, you know, people, human beings hurt each other. That's what we do. But you know what? I don't have it. I don't have a choice to shut down. My life depends on letting people in because I'm a recovering addict. The more freedom I, I have is more people that I let into my heart. And that's such a value. Like if you're talking about coping skill, it, it really is reaching out, letting other people into my life, let them know who Dan is, the ins, the outs, the bad, the good. And they love you, not in spite of yourself, but because of yourself. And that is the most powerful thing. I have found that's that for because of anything else. The reason I'm clean today is because of that is I had the courage um, was shown how to do it by others about how to let yourself go be out there because the only person you're afraid of judgment from is yourself. And when I just can say, you know what? It's me that I'm afraid of judgment from because I shared my story with some people about a room full of about 40 people. I wanted to share, um, you know, letting people in. Like, my life depends on taking a risk with love. You know, working with other recovering addicts is is the, the, the truth of the matter is you're dealing with a deadly disease. And people you let in, you have a tendency to lose them. They die. And I've lost a lot of people in the last six, six years, eight months. 
And but I'm, I I get to lose people that were close to me because I get to let more people in. That one person that died, I get to let 10 more people in. And because my life depends on it. You know, the minute I shut down is the minute I isolate. And that's the minute I, I am left alone with this judgmental, this judgmental voice in my head. And addicts take that judgmental voice and destroy themselves. Maybe that's the difference. I mean, getting the opportunity to talk these thoughts out. I haven't done it in a while, but maybe that's it. Maybe that's why addicts tend to just go back to just what they know of destroying themselves is this fear. This love is painful. And so many addicts I work with, that's all they associate love with. They came from a family of abuse. They came from abusive relationships. And so that's all they associate love with is pain, disappointment, betrayal, distrust. And so to, even if it's just with me, to form a new relationship based on I'm not going to hurt you, based on you're safe with me. That's valuable more than anything else to, to my clients that I value with them um, because they may have never had that in their life. And I know it's, it's still a job and, and it's unfortunate that they don't get to experience where that's, that's, you know, 12 step fellowships. That to me is what they're based on. But a lot of times they're so fearful of that judgment, they won't make it into the rooms of recovery, as they're called. And so a lot of my clients, they get to experience it with me, but it's still on a professional level. And it's unfortunate that they haven't yet hit a place where the, the desperation was so great that they went to a meeting and got to experience building relationships like that. Um, and then, you know, working in treatment, that is the most frustrating thing to deal with is, well, I'm in treatment. Why do I, why would I need to go to a meeting where, you know, other people are just like me? I don't like people. I'm afraid or everything else. And, you know, it's, it's disheartening, but, Working in treatment is not what keeps me clean. Um, you know, treatment is not where I found hope. Um, it gave me a vacation from myself for a little bit. Gave me a, you know, residential is sometimes the way to go, even though I work in outpatient. Um, because outpatient gives you so much freedom to destroy yourself. And it's, and it's very difficult. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I, I'm at a place too. I mean, I've, I've been working in treatment for six, over six and a half years and might be time to, to move on from treatment and, um, you know, and, and do some more stuff. You know, I, people have inquired, I got a call from somebody about doing some outreach type stuff. Um, working with, sounds like working with jails and, um, 
fire departments working with overdoses and uh, doing a lot more stuff kind of on the street and maybe even working with judges and things. So I don't know. You know, it's <clears throat> it's not like I chose to work in treatment. It almost felt like it chose me. Um, I had I was I was getting ready to affirmate treatment and I I had been going to college since I was 19 for 13 years, um, part time, had no direction, just was taking classes. And so when I was in residential treatment at 31, I called Miami University and I said, I want to change my major to social work associates and want to get my associates. And uh, they said, OK, great. You are, uh, I think, three credits, three or six credits away from getting your associate's degree in this field, um, social work. And it just seemed to be like I may not have had a plan. But somebody did. And the fact that it had all worked up to this point where you can get your associates, all you have to do is take like one or two more classes. Well, okay, it sounds like I'm going to be a counselor for a while. And, um, you know, it's, and, and then two, it took me about three years, took me about three years to become financially independent. And that, that to me was something I was never able to do. Um, you know, great parents, just so supportive and struggled with, they struggled with what's enabling Dan, what's helping Dan. And through that whole 20 years and, uh, you know, and so they, when I went into treatment, they carried me in there um, and they still were supportive and, they're such a big part of my life. And, uh, you know, to be financially independent after three years was like my greatest amends to my mother and father. Um, I can never pay him back for all the stuff like financially, but the daily, <clears throat> the daily amends of being financially independent and I've been financially independent for almost four years now. That to me is, is the most power. That's one very powerful uh, gift of just staying clean and and doing the right thing, letting people in and helping others. Yep. It sounds like a recurring theme is really just stopping the isolation and pushing forward as best as you can to not isolate yourself and get out of get out of the head and and be with people and share, you know, share what's going on because more than likely Somebody else has gone yes, through the same thing yes, and maybe and, even something worse. Yeah, gosh, there's, I always feel, I always tell my clients, like, I need to protect Dan from Dan. Not anybody else. Nobody else is going to get Dan high. I will get me high. I will make my life more miserable than anybody else. And I will destroy my life without drugs. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just a part of my nature. That's why I opened up with saying I'm a recovering addict. Because I can destroy my life. I can go numb. I can turn everything off, turn it all over to negativity without drugs. And so I need to protect Dan from Dan. And so like sometimes I'll ask a new client or somebody that's struggling. It's like, what do you fear more? And maybe this can kind of help with some insight into an addict's brain. 
What do you fear more? Living with drugs? No, no, what was it? Dying from drugs or living without them? Which one do you fear more? And so many times addicts look mm. me in the eye and say, oh my God, I've never thought about it, but I fear living without them more than I fear dying from them. And, it, and it's such yeah, a... That's what I thought the answer was going to be. Yep. Such a prisoner of that fear. Because I was taught the drugs are only a symptom. The drugs are just how we cope with this fear, this judgment. The drugs are just, just, like I said, when you asked about the coping skill is the only coping skill that we knew when we were using was to use. And so now, like, what coping skill can I use now? Right. Well, does it get me high? Well, what does make me feel good is love. What does make me feel good is to give love. That truth about the more you give, the more you receive. And so giving it back, like I get so high off working with recovering addicts at my job, in my personal life. It's, it's what I do 24, 24 hours of the day. And then I sleep, but it's just what sure. I do constantly. Yep. It's you. It's what you, yeah, I get it. And, and sometimes it comes out as, I always feel like it's coming out as anger, but it really just comes out in a passionate way because it's something I, I just, I just, I feel. It makes perfect sense, man. Like, uh, yeah, the way you're describing it, that's, it is, it's like you've, that's your passion. And I think that's, that's a great thing. And many people will probably be actually, uh, you know, a little bit jealous of that. Cause that's a cool thing. You've got your passion. So good, good on you, man. Well, that, that, finding that passion too, because it's interesting because I got to go through active addiction to find my passion. If that makes sense is, is if I hadn't gone down this path, I wouldn't have found the. I don't, why look at it with regret? Right? So many times people say, I wish I wasn't an addict. You know what? I can't change it. So let's just accept it and, and look at how I can utilize it for good. And to find peace with myself. And I was taught that first I have to accept that I'm an addict. Accept that I have, you know, mental illness. Accept that I have this about me that I need to treat on a daily basis. And then I get to help another. That's incredible. And so, like, I get to help people out of my own suffering, out of my own um, journey and get to help another person. That's incredible, you know? And so to be able to help someone where nothing else had in the past, is like, Oh my God, Dan got through to me. He rung, you know, it's almost like you ring their bell and they're like, you look them in the eye and they're like, Oh my gosh, you mean I have a choice? And they start crying and, and it's just, and their lives change because they, they didn't even think that they had a choice. Now you have a choice. You don't have to stay in this relationship. You don't have to stay in this relationship with the drugs. You don't have to stay in a relationship with this man, this woman. So often we're so, so prisoners by our own fear. 
I can't leave I can't leave this abusive relationship because what am I going to do? What are they going to do? And it's like just this unknown. And I like I look at I perceive life a lot of issues in others through the eyes of addiction. You look at an abusive relationship where the woman is in an abusive relationship and I've worked with them and the parallels are so profound is let me tell you, let me, let me share with you a little bit about a story. I was debating, but I was going to share this. Um, let me share with you about it. That's this dog. Okay. This dog came up out of the woods and he looked just beaten. And, but something happened where we connected and, uh, started petting this dog. And, you know, I, I knew he had been through a lot. You could just tell he had been abused and he needed help. And so we're like, there's this connection that we had and that went on for a while, but something happened, you know, after about six months where the dog bit me and it scared me. And the dog said, you know, let me know, like, it's okay. Like, I'm sorry. Um, I just had these issues. I've been beaten all my life. You know, my mom didn't love me, things like that. I said, okay, okay, you know, we'll work on this. The dog promised me he wasn't going to bite me again. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen for another three months. Something happened where, you know, I'm petting the dog and, and it bit me again. And so I'm bleeding. And I, and I go to my friends, they're like, what happened to you? I'm like, man, I, you know, I got bit. And uh, my friends are like, dude, you got, you keep getting bit. This is the second time you got bit by this dog. What are you doing? Like that dog is dangerous. And I told my friends, like, you don't know me and this dog. Okay. Like this dog's been through a lot. I love this dog. It's been through with me, you know, through thick and thin. We've got a lot of history. And so they said, whatever, Dan, whatever. And I go home. Next time I get bit, I don't call them for help. And the dog says, I'll never bite you again, but come here. And he bites me again. And now I'm kind of like a prisoner of this dog because I can't let it go. I can't put it down because there's this bond. Like nobody loves this dog like I do. I can fix this dog, right? I can change this dog. But as a result, my friends, when I went around my friends, they said, dude, you got bites all over you. You look like you haven't slept in days. You look like you haven't eaten. I'm like, nah, it's all good. I'm fine. I'm fine. They got like, you got bites all over you. You bruised up. I'm like, nah, they're like, dude, that dog is going to kill you. It's going to kill you. I said, no, it's, you don't know me, right? So it bites me again that night because it knows it was talking about me, right? And so I call my friends. They're like, well, I said, dude, it's enough. I got to go. I got to get out of here. 
I'm going to leave the dog here, and, and I need you to come help me. So they come. They pick me up. They're like, okay, we're going to get you some help. But what's this dog going to do? Who's going to feed the dog, right? That's all I could worry about. Me, I'm bleeding. And all I could worry about is this dog that, that who's going to feed him? Who's going to love him? Who's going to pet him? Who's going to give him water? Who's going to take him for walks? And so as a result, I called a cab and I, and, and, and I, had, I left my friend's house and I went back to the house just to check on my dog. And my friend's furious. Where'd you go? I just had to check, make sure he was okay. And in the background, he hears this dog barking, screaming. And my friend said, are you okay? I'm going to come over. And I said, no, 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 it's okay. And I hung up. My friend comes over and I don't even answer the door. I don't even answer the door. And so as a result, I'm a prisoner of my own fear. As a prisoner of who's going to take care of this dog. Because I, I don't necessarily love myself enough to walk out on this dog. Because now this dog defines me. Now this dog makes me so happy that I can't, even though it bites me. The fear of change has become so great that it outweighs the pain of remaining the same. And until that pain become great enough, was I ready to walk away from that dog? Until that pain of staying with this dog. But every time I got in front of that dog, my heart would change. He said, he's sorry. I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry. I love you and it's going to be different this time. But it ain't different every time. Because nothing changed. It all stayed the same. And as a result, I placed this dog in front of my friends, in front of my family, in front of myself. Because I was afraid of being alone. I was afraid of change. And I didn't think, I didn't, I forgot that love doesn't treat people like that. I forgot that love doesn't bite. But something about us enjoys, revels. It's almost sadism and masochism, almost loves being bit. It's very comfortable being bit. It's very comfortable in this victim role of powerlessness. This victim role of, of, I don't have control. Look at my life and what this dog has done to me. But as a result of my own decisions, as a result of my fear of letting this dog go, I stay in a, an abusive relationship with the dog. And now I have a choice. Or I have told myself I do not have a choice because if I leave this dog, he's going to kill me. And if I leave this dog, who's going to take care of this dog? If I leave this dog, who's Dan going to be without the dog? Because now Dan has been defined by this dog. And I've isolated myself from all help, all friends. 
and there's nobody left except me and this dog. And the scary thing was, my friend, is when I looked in the mirror and the lights came on, there wasn't nobody there except me the whole time. There was no dog. I was always the dog, my friend. And I will always be that dog. Because a part of me likes to get bit. A part of me likes to play victim. A part of me doesn't want to take responsibility for my life. A part of me wants to be a Toys R Us kid where I can blame everybody else for my lot, for my choices. But something happened where I couldn't blame people. I couldn't blame places. I couldn't blame things or else I was going to die. And it wasn't the dog that was going to kill me. It was myself. And if that story with the dog kind of gets a picture of what addiction really is or what this fear really is, sometimes that's the best story I can tell. Because I've told that story before and it seems to be about the most appropriate to describe what, what this is you know, in terms of how we end up a prisoner of our own decisions, how we end up a prisoner of our own fear. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. That, that is a really poignant uh, story. And I definitely am going to, I really don't have any other questions then, you know, because I feel like that right there, it sums it up that it just sums it up. There's no need to go any further. I don't think for me. And um, yeah, man, uh, I think that a lot of people, not just people who are addicted to, to drugs, but addicted to just like we were talking about, what you were talking about to just about anything or just heck, man, human nature. I feel like that's an incredibly relatable story. And uh, you know, speaks to the human condition and and I think that uh I think a lot of people can benefit from it. So I want to I want to shout out is there any way if if uh there's someone in your area where they feel like they could benefit from you know uh, working with you uh and this is only if you want to if you want to if you have a website or if you want to um have anything on here where people can reach out feel free right now to to let us know well about talking like an email address i'm i don't i'm not on facebook i'm not on social media um it's just a choice i've made um just, sure yeah no worries just it's just in case somebody wants to reach out only if you're comfortable with sharing anything then feel free if not it's it's not a big deal but i i like to always offer all of my guests to to share you know if if they want to allow listeners to get in contact with them at any given time, then. Oh, then sure. sure. I'd love to. Um, I can give my email address. It's, it's, uh, gosh, what is it? D lowercase D teats at twc.com. It's pretty simple. And, uh, that's about the, the most, uh, I like to be out there. Um, 
it's just a you know something about social media just turns me off and uh it, it's too much access to me i think and too much access for myself <laughs> sure so it just I've, I've actually been off Facebook longer than I've been clean. So, Oh, cool. Yeah. That's, that's not a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I find it, I've built some really awesome relationships and and an entire village and team, um, without social media. And, uh, so like, it's, it's a lot of freedom. I feel not having any, any social media in my life. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're onto something there. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's all bad, but I do know that I have seen the negative effects too. So yeah, that you're, uh, I think you're going to be just fine going that route staying, <laughs> staying right there where you are, but um, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to stop the recording now just so we can make. Okay. Hey, thank you so much for checking out this episode of in the shoes of if you like or don't like the podcast, feel free to leave a review or reach out to me. My email is jnickel42 at gmail.com. I can't promise you I'll get back to you right away, but I'll definitely try and get to it. Anyway, thank you so much for checking it out. Until the next time, see you later.